Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 78, Lafayette, We Are Here. When the United States of America entered the Great War on April the 6th, 1917, Allied victory was far from certain. President Wilson had done what he could to keep America out, but as the war intensified, it was only a matter of time before America was pulled in. Before Congress, Wilson made clear America would fight for American interests, and to create a peace which put the United States at the center of the post-war world. Before Wilson's idealistic visions could be accomplished, the U.S. would have to raise a new army from scratch. Decades of government parsimony and public skepticism had led the U.S. to abandon large, European-style field armies. Prior to the war, most Americans felt large armies were cumbersome liabilities, antiquated relics from the old days of aristocracy and empire. Upon entering the war, the U.S. Army was ranked 19th in the world, behind Chile, Serbia, Belgium, and Romania. It consisted of 127,588 officers and men, backed by 80,446 National Guard, none of whom were prepared for trench warfare. If America was to have success in this war, it would have to establish a new military foundation, from recruitment to training to supply and deployment. The man who would eventually lead this new army into battle was born in the small town of Laclede, Missouri in 1860. John Joseph Pershing never envisioned himself becoming a soldier. The eldest of nine siblings, Pershing was not a scion of a wealthy or privileged family. Instead, he began his career as a schoolteacher, teaching African-American students at one of the few black schools in the state. By all accounts, Pershing enjoyed teaching, but at 21 years of age, felt he had experienced all rural Missouri had to offer. So, in 1882, he applied for a cadetship at West Point, where he graduated four years later, ranking middle of his class. Pershing reported for active duty in September 1886. He was first posted to the 6th Cavalry in New Mexico, where he took part in the government campaigns to suppress the Sioux and Apache. In 1895, he was promoted to command the 10th Cavalry Regiment, an all-black unit formed during the Civil War. At a time when America's military was still racially segregated, Pershing became one of the few white officers to voice their support for black soldiers. This is the likely etymology of his famous nickname, Blackjack, which was not given to him as a term of endearment, if you catch my meaning. Pershing would take the 10th Cavalry into action during the Spanish-American War. He would also catch the attention of Theodore Roosevelt, when the 10th Cavalry supported Roosevelt's Rough Riders during the Battle of San Juan Hills. When Roosevelt was elected president in 1901, he would promote Pershing to Brigadier General. This allowed Pershing to skip three ranks and more than 800 senior officers. Having served as a military liaison during the Russo-Japanese War, Pershing returned to the United States in 1905 and wed Helen Frances Warren the daughter of a well-connected Wyoming senator. Despite long periods of separation, their marriage was happy and fruitful, producing four children between 1906 and 1912. Sadly, the young family was struck by tragedy three years later. In August 1915, 
Pershing was stationed in Fort Bliss, Texas, while Helen stayed with the children at their family home in San Francisco. On the night of August 27th, while Helen and the children were fast asleep, hot coals from the fireplace had popped out onto the heavily waxed floor. The flames spread quickly. When Pershing saw the home's charred remains, he reportedly said they had no chance. Their son, Warren, survived, but his wife and three daughters, Helen, Anne, and Mary, perished. The youngest child, Mary, was only three years old. The gut-wrenching loss had a profound impact on Pershing's career. He threw himself into his work. In March of 1916, just eight months after the fire, he led 10,000 men into Mexico as part of the punitive expedition against Pancho Villa. While the expedition failed to locate the famous bandito, no U.S. general since the Spanish-American War had commanded so large a force, and he learned important lessons in transportation, logistics, and aviation. His experiences in Mexico rocketed Pershing to the top of the list of candidates to command the American army in 1917. John Pershing had a Herculean task before him. Not only was he to oversee the organization, training, equipping, and deployment of a new national army, he then had to lead that army into a war which had been raging for nearly four years. Not only were America's enemies battle-hardened, but its allies were equally ravenous to consume American resources. It is worth remembering that the United States joined the war as an associate power. It was not beholden to the territorial ambitions of the French and British, and it was under no obligation to put its troops under foreign command. To reinforce this, Pershing was granted total authority over when, where, and how U.S. troops would be deployed. In his last visit to the White House, the Secretary of War, Newton Baker, had told Pershing, quote, I give you only two orders, one to go to France, and the other to come home. Pershing, along with 191 members of his staff, arrived in France on June the 13th. Their arrival was a welcome distraction from the anathema which had engulfed France following the Nivelle Offensive. People turned up in droves to cheer the Americans as they passed. Men, women, and children absolutely packed every foot of space, even to the windows and housetops, recalled Pershing. Cheers and tears were mingled together, and shouts of enthusiasm fairly rented the air. As they made their way through Paris, the Americans paid homage at Napoleon's tomb, before making a private pilgrimage to the grave of the Marquis de Lafayette, the French hero of the American Revolution. It was here where Pershing's aide, Colonel Charles E. Staunton, uttered the famous words, Lafayette, we are here. Warm welcomes aside, the American arrival was largely symbolic. The United States still did not have an army to speak of, and their troops were not expected to be combat ready until 1918 at the earliest, so the overall scale of their commitment remained an unanswered question. While many were optimistic about the influx of men, money, and machinery, there were reservations. For example, the most radical of the French mutineers believed America's intervention would prolong the war. There was a very real fear that American workers would replace French workers, thus freeing up French civilians for military service. While unfounded, these rumors did hang over the celebrations like a lead balloon. The British also had concerns. 
They had hoped, slash assumed, that American troops would be placed under their command or be outright amalgamated into the British Army. Now, the French had wanted this as well, but since most American officers cannot speak French, it would be easier to place them under British command. In short, the British did not have a high opinion of the Americans. Pershing met Haig for the first time on July 20th. Haig wrote of Pershing, quote, I was much struck with his quiet, gentlemanly bearing, so unusual for an American, most anxious to learn, and fully realizes the greatness of the task before him. He has already begun to realize that the French are a broken reed. End quote. However, Haig was less impressed with Pershing's staff. Haig described them as, quote, men of less quality and quite ignorant of the problems of modern war. But there was one junior officer who did make an impression. Pershing's aide-de-camp was a 31-year-old captain from California. Haig described this gentleman as a fire-eater and one who longed for the fray. His name? Well, Captain George S. Patton. Now, it would be wrong of us to dismiss Pershing's tour as entirely PR. He was not there to just take in the sights and sounds of Paris, after all. On June 26th, he met Pétain for the very first time. While we do not have exact minutes of their conversation, the two men did agree on the U.S. zone of operation. With the British operating in the north, and the French covering the approaches to Paris, the Americans would take over the Lorraine sector, a quiet stretch of front east of the Argonne Forest. This sector offered several advantages. Being at the far end of the front, it allowed the Americans to utilize the points of Saint-Nazaire, Marseille, and Bordeaux, thus bypassing the congested channel ports in the north. Although no one expected the Americans to take large-scale offensives in 1917, their mere presence in Lorraine threatened several German-held positions, including some key railway hubs, iron fields, and the coal deposits of the Saar River. With the zone of operations established, more American troops made their way to Europe. The first unit to disembark was the 1st U.S. Division, which arrived at Saint-Nazaire in July 1917. The 1st U.S. Division was a ersatz unit, hastily thrown together to serve as a model for the new National Army. It consisted of 19,000 officers and men, making it the 1st Division Strength Unit in the U.S. Army. Upon arrival, 1st Division was moved into Lorraine, where it received trench training overseen by French and British officers. So to end off this episode, I do want to provide just a general overview of how the new American army was formed. As mentioned at the start of this episode, the United States had abandoned maintaining a large standing army. But if America was to become a major contributor, it would have to start from square one. Essentially, the United States faced the same problem as the British did in 1914. Following their example, Congress acknowledged the only way to build an army was through conscription. However, conscription had a rough history in the U.S. During the Civil War, it had led to race riots and other forms of civil unrest, the 1863 New York City draft riot being a prime example. The Wilson administration had to tread lightly. In May of 1917, they introduced the Selective Service Act. The Selective Service Act required all males between 21 to 30 to register for military service. To facilitate the draft, 
thousands of local draft centers were established across the country, where their names would be called up by local notables and other regional representatives. Like Kitchener's Pals Battalions, men would be called up alongside their friends, neighbors, and other community members. This also allowed the granting of selective exemptions based on essential occupations and family obligations. By the end of 1917, 516,212 men had been inducted in this fashion. By 1918, over 2,294,000. Colloquially known as Doughboys, your typical American enlistee was a young man in his early 20s, having little education and no previous military experience. He stood 5 foot 7, had at least 20 teeth, and weighed approximately 145 pounds. According to Lawrence Sonhaus, 500,000 were foreign-born, 37% could not read or write, and only 21% had any education beyond grammar school. To address this issue, the federal government established 32 training camps across the country. These camps offered four months of basic training, including basic English and literacy skills. The Doughboy would then go on to 16 weeks of specialty training for riflemen, gunners, engineering, and communication. These courses were expected to provide enlisted men with proper training for trench warfare. Problem was, the American Army did not have any equipment suitable for the realities of the Western Front. It lacked machine guns, mortars, rifles, and had virtually no heavy artillery to speak of. For example, most Americans were taken to France aboard European ships, and were transported to the front using French or British trucks. In terms of artillery, the American Expeditionary Force would deploy 3,500 pieces by 1918, only 130 of which were produced in the United States. Of the 8,116,000 artillery shells fired, only 8,400 were American-made. There was one other problem. Recruiting and equipping men was one thing, but you need officers to lead them. Before 1917, there were only a limited number of regular and National Guard officers available, and this would not be nearly enough to command this rapidly expanding force. In response, officer training programs were set up across the country. These programs would produce large numbers of college-educated junior officers. Graduates from the OTPs were known as 90-day wonders, and they would make up about half the Army's officer needs. It should not come as a surprise to hear that many of the 90-day wonders lacked proper field experience, but this would slowly right itself once the AEF entered proper combat. American troops would see their first battles in October 1917. While more Americans arrived in greater numbers, the British were planning something big. Beneath the German positions of Messines Ridge, Royal Engineers were in the process of planting a series of underground mines. The largest of these mines contained 95,600 pounds of explosive charges. When they were detonated on the morning of June 7, 1917, they would be the largest man-made explosions in history, not to be eclipsed until the Hiroshima bomb. That's it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website, thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can reach the show on Twitter, at Great War Podcast, 
or through email, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. That again is at greatwarpodcast on Twitter or thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. This was episode 78 of The Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.